JAT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at UNC Chapel Hill, and the co-host of JAT Chat with Dr. Kara Radzak. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Drs. Michelle Walaszek and Christopher Coombs. Dr. Walaszek is a physical therapist, PhD candidate at the University of Virginia, and research associate at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And Dr. Coons is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Virginia. They are co-authors of Quadriceps Strength and Knee-Related Symptom State Six Months After ACL Reconstruction. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy so, to be here, Sean. Yeah. So starting off very broad for our listeners, what do we know about ACL reconstruction and quad strength in this population? Very broad yeah. question. <laughs> very broad question. <laughs> um, I'll try to keep it as like tight as I can. So um, in ACL population, um, quadriceps strength is a pretty common clinical outcome that we use um, to kind of track assessments, um, especially in return to sport. Um, so there's kind of two ways that we look at uh, the strength metric. So we look at individual limb strength, and then we also look at it as a metric of symmetry between the ACLR limb and the uninvolved limb. Um, we tend to use this because it can be used clinically and in research. So in the clinical space, we usually use like handheld dynamometers. And then within the research space, we can also use those types of equipment. But then we can also use more precise measurements like biodex and those types of things. Um, so... Uh, we know that in the ACLR population uh, with isometric quadriceps strength, especially, it's more of the common metric that we use. Um, individuals tend to demonstrate better outcomes if they have increased strength of their ACLR limb after surgery. And then also if they have higher limb symmetry, so closer to that 100%, 100% would be that they're, both their limbs are symmetrically strong, um, they have these better outcomes. So specifically, individuals after ACL reconstruction usually report better function, function being anything from like accessing their environment on the day-to-day to, -day to um, performance and return to sport. Um, as early as six months post-ACL reconstruction, all the way up to like 13 years after ACL reconstruction. Um, so those are kind of things that we look at. And then it's also been associated with, specifically symmetry has been associated with a decreased risk of re-injury in this population. So we kind of want to make sure that those quads are functioning appropriately and they're functioning very similarly after ACL reconstruction. Anything to add, Chris? that the timing also matters. So uh, recently there's been a, a series of studies that have come out um, that have looked at um, not just that is strength related to re-injury or to long-term outcome, but like when you measure strength, uh, does that matter? And it does seem like earlier after surgery, maybe three or four months after surgery, folks who are more symmetrical and stronger may actually have a higher risk of re-injury within two years because they gain confidence more quickly, they get cleared to participate in sports more quickly, they're exposed to things that are high risk more quickly. And then at later time points, seven, eight, nine months after surgery, folks who have higher strength or better symmetry seem to be potentially at lower risk for re-injury. So there is something about like when we do the assessment, uh, when in the clinical progression it occurs, that lets us know kind of um, whether or not it's a good thing or maybe a not so good thing. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, Michelle, you were, you were mentioning a little bit more about these different clinical criteria and clinical cutoffs and limb symmetry. Um, just for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with LSI and clinical threshold cutoffs, can you just talk us through these different clinical cutoffs and what are they associated with, uh, specifically as we think about outcomes after ACL reconstruction? Yeah, for sure. So um, in the individual limb, um, there's been a established criterion for several years now. Um, we use this metric, anything greater than uh, 3.0 newton meters per kg. An easier way to kind of think about this is like three times your body weight. Um, anything above that is considered to be kind of this better outcome. And I'll let Chris kind of speak more to this since he was the author on that paper. Um, I'll talk about kind of this limb symmetry index. So in the clinical space and the research space, we often use this 90% limb symmetry index cutoff. It's essentially just a metric um, looking at the ACLR limb function over the uninvolved limb function, multiplying it by 100 and getting a percentage. Um, so we typically use this 90% cutoff um, in the clinical space for return to sport. It just kind of helps us track objectively how that ACLR limb is doing in relation to the uninvolved limb. Um, and so anything less than 90% is considered to be like a higher risk for re-injury in this population. Again, to Chris's point, um, kind of that timing of when this is all happening is important as well. Um, and I think, as he said, there's been newer research studies coming out about when that timing is the important thing to reach that 90% or greater. The one thing we kind of don't know at this point is above 100%. So if that ACLR limb is doing better strength-wise or maybe for hopping metrics, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So I think one thing we need to think about in the future um, for this population is looking at healthy individuals that are uninjured and seeing kind of how this symmetry metric plays out. Um, and so uh, that's kind of where we stand right now. I know Elizabeth Walsan had a paper on kind of this symmetry index and it's kind of um, relationship in the ACLR population and that might not be the best, met best metric to use um, to track return to sport objectively. So Chris, you want to talk a little bit more about the three Newton meters per kg in the individual limbs? Sure. Yeah. So I, I published a paper maybe, I don't know, it's almost 10 years ago now. I think I'm getting old. Uh, but uh, And then Brian Petra-Simone down at the University of North Carolina also around the same time published a, a very similar paper and we found something that was like extremely similar, which is always a good thing. You know, replication is really important. The 3.0 metric really came from looking at the association of quad strength in the ACLR limb to like knee related function or knee symptoms. So it wasn't a, an idea that was related directly to risk of re-injury or to development of OA or even likelihood of return to sport at a later time. And so I always like to like put a big, big, big asterisk in front of the 3.0 metric because it, it means something and it's been replicated now several other times since Brian and I initially published our uh, papers around around the same time. But um, I think trying to use that as like the end all be all metric is a, is a bit um, challenging. It also doesn't take into account growth and development, maturation, you know, is it normal for a 16 year old to be able to lift three times their body weight? It, it may not be, or for a 55 year old who's a weekend warrior, you know, these are things that we just don't really know. We have two projects going on right now where we're hoping to set some age specific criteria for folks, but I completely agree with Michelle's point that, um, you know, having a better understanding of what a healthy person at a certain point in their life with a certain activity level 
that that really probably is our our better static measure to use, or maybe some combination between a cutoff score and a healthy measure to give us an idea of like what's a normal range of values. Because I, uh, Shelby, I, I can guess, uh, you know, you're not a cutoff score lover. And part of the issue is that there's variability in, in every measure, right? There's always kind of this um, moving target or a range of targets that are acceptable. And so, I, you know, the 3.0 is a great little benchmark, but it's probably not meaningful in every patient or every population or at every time point after surgery. Yeah, so it sounds like just a lot of variability in how you can measure it, what we should be measuring, um, and how to make sense of quad strength after ACL reconstruction. Uh, but what, what was interesting in this paper is that you all um, included the symptom states uh, to help to try and characterize quad strength. Can, can you just discuss what was the catalyst for the inclusion of uh, this uh, patient-reported function and, and symptom state to understand quad strength after ACL? So um, Anglin et al. in 2003, they established this criteria that we used in this paper. And I'll kind of talk about it a little bit more um, in a bit. But essentially what they did was they wanted to look at this patient-centered metric. So like patient-reported metric of how these individuals are doing after this traumatic kind of experience at in their knee. So basically what they did was they wanted to look at um, this metric to inform out seeking additional medical care for knee-related symptoms. So in the paper, we discuss it as clinical knee-related symptoms, and I'll kind of refer to that from now on. Um, but essentially, they were looking to see and understand how patients specifically are feeling. So it's more of a subjective assessment, but in conjunction with an objective questionnaire that we often use in the ACL population. Um, so they took the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score or the COOS, and they established kind of these breakdowns of where it occurs. And so um, there's kind of two pieces to that algorithm that they came up with. So the first one has to do with um, one of the five subscales of the COOS. And so it has to do with the quality of life subscale. And then you have to meet certain metrics for the other four subscales. So that includes symptoms, pain, um, activities of daily living, and then sport and recreation. Um, I can speak a little bit more about the specifics of those if you'd like me to, Shelby. Um, okay. So basically, individuals who scored less than 87.5 on the Coos quality of life and met two of the following criteria. So Coos symptoms less than 85.7 Coos pain less than 86.1, Coos ADL less than 86.8, or the Coos sport and recreation less than 85.0. Um, and so this is kind of a inclusive um, classification for these individuals, but it does kind of take into account or uh, emphasize that quality of life a little bit more over the other four subscales. And that's basically the premise of this paper. We classified individuals in two different manners. We classified them based on their quadriceps strength and based on this clinical knee-related symptom state. I'm, I think I'm a little bit more familiar with the Luton criteria. And I know that criteria also had like a clinical examination and some imaging attached to it. Um, is it very similar as it relates to the England criteria to help us understand the symptom state? Yeah, so there is some similarities between them. Um, I know that Dr. Matthew Harkey came out with a paper kind of looking at those two very recently. Um, and so we chose the England criteria over the Luton just because it uses the COOS, which is more commonly used in this return to sport assessment to kind of track um, uh, progression throughout ACL reconstruction. And that's kind of where we decided 
it would be more clinically applicable um, to look at how these individuals are doing. And it's a lot easier to assess in the clinic rather than, like you said, the Luton criteria has all these other kind of more complex metrics to look at. And so we were just kind of looking for something that's more clinically applicable that clinicians can use maybe with something they're already using for return to sport. And that's kind of where we came from. Chris, anything to add? Yeah, I think the the other part was we were sort of looking at why the criteria were established and and the Luton criteria were really established as a kind of identification of early stages of osteoarthritis, which is very important in patients with ACL reconstruction. So like up to a third of patients will have early osteoarthritis within uh, 10 years of of ACL reconstruction and 50% within 20 years, which like for a 16-year-old is when they're 36, right? They probably have little kids running around at home or they're just getting to kind of peak in their career at that point and they've got arthritis, which is, uh, you know, a scary thought. But what we were really interested in was more just sort of a general symptom state. Like, does your knee bother you or doesn't bother you? Do you have pain? Do you feel limited in doing things? And that's really what the England criteria was developed for. Now, we could have a long conversation about how these criteria were validated, how they've been applied to things, which populations they seem to be more effective in or less effective in. But we thought like straightforward, simple, easy to understand, single questionnaire, just get to the point. You know, we're not trying to make this any more complicated than it needs to. And and I think that that often can be a, a really helpful approach. Um, while I'm, my mic is turned on, uh, Shelby, one thing that you mentioned earlier was just around this kind of variability in assessing strength and like when do you do it and how do you do it. And I think the big take home, and I think Michelle would agree with me on, on this point, is like, just measure something like uh, there are lots of ways to go about this. Um, and, I'm, you know, for a long time in my clinical education and education for others, the manual muscle test was like the standard practice for strength assessment. And I think as a field, we've evolved beyond that in many ways. We sort of understand the limitations in a manual muscle test or why that might not be the most appropriate approach. But when it comes to strength assessment, if we're thinking about the physiology of the contraction, are there differences between an isometric and an isokinetic contraction? Of course there are, but using a tool that gives you a number that you can track over time in a reliable way is really sort of the most important thing. And so if that's a handheld dynamometer or an adapted handheld dynamometer like Terry Grindstaff or others have kind of shown how to stabilize it on a table, or whether it's using like a really inexpensive push-pull strain gauge that costs $100, like uh, John Gutchess at uh, James Madison has published some papers on how to adapt really inexpensive scales and tools to do strength assessment. Whatever it is, get a number so that you can track that number over time. Because with a manual muscle test, it's how strong you're feeling on a given day and how strong your patient's feeling on a given day. And whether you had your Wheaties and your coffee or not, you know, influence how you perceive that test. Whereas it's really hard to trick a dynamometer. And so that's that's kind of why we push in that direction. I know it's more challenging and more complicated, kind of the opposite of what we just said about our COOS criteria, but getting a number is a really powerful thing. Yeah, I think one more point to add is um, test and test multiple times. So having one metric or one instance is not going to be indicative of kind of that, what that patient's actually doing, because they might not understand what you're asking them to do in the clinic, or maybe they're fearful of something. So just, I would say on top of that, objectively measure, but also measure multiple times in one instance. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, Go ahead and dive into some of these resources and figure out how to objectively measure quad strain uh, in your clinical practice. 
Um, so I totally agree with both of what Chris and Michelle have said too. So um, really good take home point um, identified there. Um, so bringing it back to your article just a bit, um, what all did you find uh, as it relates to isometric quad strength and quad strength symmetry uh, for as it is associated with uh, clinical knee related symptoms? So like I said earlier, I kind of mentioned this, but kind of blew past it. We classified individuals in two different ways. So we classified them based on their England criteria. So did they have unacceptable clinical knee-related symptoms? So they were below those metrics I had mentioned earlier. And then we also classified them based on their quadriceps strength and their ACLR limb, as well as their limb symmetry index. So we... Um, parceled out these individuals and we had four groups that we ended up with. We had individuals who met both the strong and symmetrical piece. So they were above three times their body weight in that ACL limb, and they were above that 90% symmetry. We had a strong only group. So they only met that strength criteria and they were below 90% for their symmetry. We had symmetry only. So they were above 90% symmetry, but didn't meet that individual ACL limb metric. And then we had the neither strong nor symmetrical group. So they didn't meet either of these criteria. And these individuals were between five and seven months post ACLR. So they've been through their rehabilitation. They're kind of in this latter stage of rehabilitation, transitioning into more sports specific and like higher level function at this point. So I just want to keep that in mind for anyone that's listening. Um, I think the most interesting thing we found was that of the 173 participants that we included across these three sites that we worked with, and thank you to all of our collaborators on this project because we wouldn't have been able to do this without you. Um, we found that 65% of these individuals were in that neither symmetrical or strong category, which is crazy to think about as a clinician. Because um, a lot of times, um, there was an article recently uh, published by Burroughs et al. And they were saying how most rehab or physical therapy visits are used up by 16 weeks post-op. So they've transitioned out of rehab and now they're not even meeting these common clinical thresholds that we have objectively. So that's a little bit concerning. If you want to be more concerned, 85% um, of our entire sample did not meet one or both of those quadriceps strength metrics. Um, so that is kind of an eye-opening uh, piece to kind of think about. And we've kind of seen this in our data sets as, we, as we've been writing more papers recently. So it is definitely something we need to think about, I think, as clinicians of how do we improve our care for these individuals? Because we want to see them ultimately go back to sport or back to their physical activity or back to their activities of daily living without having this fear of re-injury or any complications afterwards. So um, we did unfortunately find there was no association between saying that I have acceptable clinical knee-related symptoms and I meet this strong and symmetrical um, criteria. So there was no association there from the data. Um, and it also didn't hold for anyone that was in that symmetrical only group to be acceptable clinically for that knee-related symptom. Um, and I think kind of this came from our groups were incredibly unbalanced. As I said earlier, um, based on how individuals met these strength criteria, we had 65% in that neither strong nor symmetrical and only 26 individuals that were in our strong and symmetrical group. Our strong only group only had four individuals that met it. And then our symmetrical only group only had 30 individuals. So I think this kind of unbalanced um, grouping was kind of the main player in what we found. However, I think it is important to know that this is, I think, pretty representative of the clinical population that we see. So 
kind of caveats there um, to think about? Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's interesting. Uh, I'll take it from the flip side instead of on the quad side, the symptom side. You know, if we look at patients who are between five and nine months after ACL reconstruction, um, somewhere between 30 and 45% of those patients are going to report unacceptable symptoms that are limiting their ability to be active. Um, and that doesn't take into account other patient reported outcomes that also have a negative impact on their ability to be active, things that are more in Shelby's uh, area of expertise, right? Things around confidence and uh, grit and anxiety and social support and all these other factors that are super important. Not that those don't influence symptoms as well, but you know, there's lots of people that have independent processes outside of symptoms related to those things. And so you know, I, I do think we sort of do this thing when we have these interviews where we're just talking about the bad stuff, right? Like, oh my God, so many people weren't symmetrical and so many people have symptoms. And it's true. I think clinically, if you were to objectively evaluate or to get an outside evaluator to come in and, and test all your patients, you're going to find that a lot of them are probably not where you'd like them to be from a metrics perspective. Um, what's interesting or what I think is good is that, you know, a lot of these patients are still pretty active after they've had surgery and they have a pretty long active lifespan and things in general seem to be pretty okay. I mean, it's a life-changing procedure that does a lot of trauma to the joint. And uh, for the majority of patients, if you ask them at a year or two years after surgery, they would indicate that they were satisfied with the procedure and that they would do it again if they had the opportunity to uh, in order to address their concerns. So, you know, again, not saying symptoms don't matter and that quad strength isn't important and that we shouldn't try to mitigate symptoms or reduce re-injury risk. But we do also want to, every once in a while, take a look at the good side of the coin and say a lot of patients are pretty happy with the way things went and, you know, something seems to be going okay with their current care. We can definitely improve, but, um, you know, that's that's kind of where, where we are, you know, right now. So it sounds like definitely some areas for improvement, but also making sure we take the time to acknowledge that we're doing a good job and we just want to continue to provide the best care that we can for our patients moving forward. Um, so based off of what you all have found in this article and about some of the conversations we've had today, um, what are the next steps? What's the next step piece of research or clinical practice? What, can, what would you recommend for a clinician to do based off of um, what you found in, in your, your paper. Yeah, so although our hypothesis didn't hold true, I think it's important for clinicians to consider that subjective and objective assessment throughout this process. And so um, whatever your clinic uses as those metrics and you know, whenever you start testing, just make sure that you're not only getting that objective feedback. Obviously, we know from a physical therapy standpoint, billing, that's super important. However, we interact with our patients, athletic trainers, physical therapists, um, anyone who's in strength and conditioning. We see these individuals multiple times a week for several minutes a day. And so we want to make sure that we're hearing what they're saying, what their goals are. We want to be as specific as possible. So we also want to track that subjective, like how are you feeling today and how are you feeling the next day and kind of along this progression so that we can continue to provide this quality care for them and this patient-specific care. Um, they want to get back to activities that are salient to them. So we want to make that those activities salient to us as well as clinicians. So like having this ability to combine the subjective and objective, I think is the way 
um, that is most appropriate um, to address our patients instead of just treating them as a number, um, treating them as an actual individual with their goals in mind. Um, I think some of the things that have come out of this um, project as well as some of the other projects we've worked on in our lab is just kind of this understanding of what is normal. Like what is normal in healthy individuals? As researchers, the best thing would be to track everybody. And then if they get injured, we know pre-injury what they were looking like. Realistically, we know that's not really possible. So how can we understand from a healthy perspective what is normal for symmetry metrics, for hopping, for strength? Um, I think we've done a better job um, psychologically understanding maybe what healthy looks like comparing these individuals. Um, But functionally, I think we kind of forget that piece a lot of the time because we're so concerned about these individuals um, after this traumatic surgery and injury. Um, But I think now we're getting to the point of like, what is normal? So what can we compare these individuals to? Um, So I think looking at that is super important moving forward. And then as a clinician, um, for any young clinicians or even seasoned clinicians out there, just try to look into the evidence. What is most recent? What's going on? Um, I think we get stuck in these um, ruts of just... I see something, I hear something from my colleagues, I read it, and then I hold on to it for several years until I hear something different or I see something different. So just try to check in with the literature or your colleagues every so often, whether that's having, you know, maybe clinic-wide discussions or just informal discussions while you're at the clinic. Um, And for any young clinicians out there, don't be afraid to ask questions of those seasoned clinicians. They're going to be kind of your best resource for Um, where to go, who to ask, um, conferences that you can attend and network, um, those types of things. So I think ultimately, we all have this goal of getting our patients back to return to sport or return to physical activity or return to daily living with the highest quality of care in mind. And I know um, as a clinician, one of the things I struggled with um, is just time. You don't have enough time in the day with each patient one-on-one to kind of get at them, but how can we educate them beyond the clinic to send them home with home exercises and things that they can really hold on to and kind of take with them as they progress back on their own? Measure things. Uh, It's important. I know numbers are hard to manage sometimes and where do I put, you know, how do I store it during the assessment so that later on I can put it in the EMR and I, I totally get all those those limitations that happen on, on a daily basis. We collect the majority of our data in the in the clinic here at UVA and so like we get it. It is really challenging. What I would say is that there are a lot of online tools now that make your life a lot easier. So the COOS is available in a fully interactive online form. You can have it open on a browser on your computer or tablet. Um, Same thing with the IQDC and the ACLRSI and a bunch of these other scales. Um, Or there's downloadable spreadsheets where the the patient can just click right in the spreadsheet with their answers are and it will tabulate the the scores for you. And so Google is a powerful tool or Bing or whatever you use. And there's a lot of useful tools that are out there that will help in cutting down some of that administrative burden in a way that can help you to do this stuff. Um, And then the, the third one would be I think kind of trusting your eyes and what's in front of you. If you think a patient's in distress, they probably are. And and using some good kind of leading, not leading questions, some open-ended questions that allow the patient to sort of lead you in the direction of what's going on without interrupting them or without trying to push the conversation in the specific direction that you're interested in 
even just for a minute or two, goes a long way in getting understanding of what's actually going on with the patient. So measuring the coos is awesome, but you can also just ask the right questions and get someone to tell you that their knee's been bothering you or, you know, that they've had some symptoms or something that's popped up or they mowed the lawn this weekend and their knee hurts as a result, right? Uh, this is all stuff that, you know, you can get through a good clinical interview. Um, not being afraid to refer out if you need it as a clinician. Sometimes um, it's beyond our scope of practice what these conversations lead to. So um, just like Chris said, have those open conversations with your patients and use your eyes and your ears to really make and help your clinical decision making. I just really love this underlying biopsychosocial approach to patient management that has um, occurred in our conversation because that's really what what I, I love discussing. Um, so I really appreciate um, the conversation and the and the take home points you provided for our listeners today. Um, any other last minute uh, take home points or conversation points? Uh, anything you want to discuss from from like. Uh, me measuring any of the, the quad strength, the PROs? Uh, yeah, we created an online tool that's meant to help uh, clinicians generate like report cards for their patients uh, based on their functional and patient-reported outcome measures. Right now at acldashboard.com, um, we have an interactive tool that will let you do that for adolescent patients who are in that five to seven month uh, period after ACL reconstruction. It's based on data from about 800 patients. Um, in the coming month, we should have updates pushed for that tool that should include adults at the same time point, as well as adolescents and adults at earlier and later time points. So currently, we've got about 2,000 patients worth of data, and we're pushing about 4,000 patient encounters that'll power that uh, tool. And so it gives some fun graphs, and it compares it to the large data set when you input someone's hop distance, it tells you that they fall in the 87th percentile or 55th percentile. I think of it like a height weight chart for ACL reconstruction. So hopefully that's something that can be helpful. Uh, it's also printable. So after you generate a report, you can hit control P or command P, whatever your print command is, and actually print a PDF of it and upload it into the EMR so that you've got kind of longitudinal data on the patient that's in front of you. And then give that link one more time for our listeners. Sure, it's acldashboard.com. We tried to make it pretty simple. Awesome. Well, Chris and Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. And this article will be available free of charge by the General of Athletic Training. And I highly recommend everyone go and download this manuscript in a future issue of the General of Athletic Training. Again, thank you so much, and we will see you next time.